0: Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manesh. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Mesa, Arizona. Welcome to the show, Aaron Chapman.
1: Thank you, Victor. I appreciate you allowing me to come on and participate with you on it.
0: Great to talk with you. Now, for some of the listeners who don't know you, I know you've been on a lot of different shows, but some may not know you. Why don't you take a minute, give a little bit of your backstory and how you got into this particular segment of real estate investing.
1: So more or less, it came from a background that goes way back to cattle ranching, heavy equipment operating, mining, and then being forced out of that world due to them shutting out a project in the the mining world in northern New Mexico coming back to Arizona, broken, need, looking for a job, couldn't find one, was introduced to the lending industry in 1997 by a friend who found me at a grocery store literally picking up coins to get enough cash to get home with the diapers I just bought with a coupon because we were that broke. And in that introduction, he brought me into a world that I was never really – I was not aware of but had to adapt to. It was not easy. I had to, to slowly evolve over time into – the space that I occupy now, which is helping finance the real estate investor utilizing conventional financing. And I know that you guys talk a lot more about the commercial world. I have I, I do have associates I work with a lot in the commercial world because they're good at that. I focus where I am very good, which is the one thing that I believe is the most underserved out there in the community of real estate investors trying to get started is the conventional real estate, you know, the one to four family stuff. So that's where I focus my energy Uh, Over these last 22 years now, in recent uh, years, I I was with the uh, sheriff's department, uh, kind of a side project, if we will. I was running their technical rescue unit, their air rescue unit, and their off-road rescue unit, me and my wife together. That was great. Retired from that this last year at the same time, still doing this business and expanding my business from there.
0: I love that. Well, certainly the one to four residential world is one where a lot of investors, like you said, are underserviced. A lot of people coming into that space with maybe more of an employee mindset, maybe more of a self-employed mindset, not necessarily the investor mindset. So they're thinking, you know, eliminate debt. Debt is bad. You know, try and get things to cash flow. Cash flow is king. And all those things are important, but maybe a true investor mindset, a professional investor mindset might be a little bit different.
1: Precisely. And that's what I've seen evolve with these folks over the years I've worked with is they come into it with a very consumer mindset of spending money and going into debt because that's their entire process up to this point. Anytime they've used leverage, they've never thought of leverage. They saw it as debt. And they were taught by their parents and taught even by their parents' mistakes, maybe carrying too much debt. And they get to a point where they believe they must use every resource available to them to eliminate this thing they consider debt. Now, I know Kiyosaki coined the good debt versus bad debt, but when it comes to financing investment real estate, I have to really disagree on the use of the word debt entirely. I look at this as asset, The really the greatest asset associated with the, uh, with the investment. N- number one is the, is the mindset. That's the greatest asset. Going and looking at this from the perspective of this new CEO of a real estate investment firm, startup business, even if you're buying single families, you have to look at this as you're, you're bringing your capital to the table as a small percentage of the acquisition. You're taking on a business partner in the form of a banking entity that's able to tap into Wall Street investment capital up to 80% of the value of that property, and now you're able to acquire this asset that somebody else is putting the majority of the capital for. You get to have 100% ownership, though. You, you, You get to make the decisions on it. You keep the cash flow. You keep the profits on it. And when it's all settled out, it's ultimately yours as long as your partner gets their small percentage every month. Of that that percentage that they put in. Of course we know the really cool part comes when you buy something that somebody else wants to inhabit and somebody else wants to pay rent for. And what's really cool about that is even though we may be subject to compound interest when you take on that leverage, you know, the eighth wonder of the world as Einstein coined it. If you're purchasing properly and it's something that has you know deferred those maintenance costs down the road because you purchased properly with the right mechanicals, right roof, all the, all the major expenses are, are all taken care of up front. Then you've got somebody willing to pay enough to occupy it that gives you that cash flow. We now see that we have that capability to increase those rents due to inflation, correct?
0: Absolutely. I mean, if I think about, I'm glad you mentioned inflation because it's the one thing that is constant that's often overlooked. A lot of people employ very short-term thinking. I mean, if I think about the four-bedroom house my parents purchased in the 1960s for $42,000, they paid all cash for it, and they held it up until the time I graduated university. Now, the fact is, if they had financed that 100%, That same house really is is worth no more today than it was when they bought it back in 1967. It's the same four-bedroom house. It hasn't moved. It hasn't grown. So it offers the same utility. But today, if they were to purchase or sell that property, if they still owned it, it would sell for north of half a million. So even if they financed it 100% back in the 60s and didn't make a penny of principal pay down and just service the interest over that time period they instead of sitting at a hundred percent loan to value, they'd be sitting at like, I don't know, seven, eight percent loan to value today. And that's inflation.
1: That's one of the that's one of the beauties of inflation. The other beauties of inflation is, you know, since we get to raise rents in fact do you know what the rate of inflation is right now?
0: that's a whole much that's a whole bigger topic i, I, I <laughs>
1: well what, what is what is at least the published rate
0: well the published rate they're saying is something in the range of 2.2 to 2.8 percent their target is 2.8 and they're saying it's less than that but the truth is if you actually look at the bureau of labor and statistics and and separate out what goes into the basket the different uh elements of this basket that they call the consumer price index the real number is significantly higher it's somewhere in the range of between nine and ten percent
1: Exactly. You know, that, that, to make it easier, so people don't have to do the separation, they can go to the, the um, shadowstats.com, as in Shadow exactly. Statistics, John Williams put that out there saying between you know upwards of over 7%. If you're looking at the Chapwood Index, but takes specific areas, 50 of them to be precise, and, and they just monitor the top 500 things people spend money on, you'll see some parts of the of the U.S. at over 13%. So it's, it's one of these things that, like you said, it's a constant. We're going to be dealing with it. But how does the real estate investor take, take advantage of that? We already talked about one. The other is we get to raise rents. Now, if you're talking about the regular single family, last I looked, average rent increases are about 3%. So just to illustrate this with numbers, just to kind of help the, the investors listening, I know this is going to be a small scale for your commercial investor, but it's to help with the point. If you're buying a property for 100000 and you're financing that property with $80,000 regular conventional financing. Interest rates today says your payment's going to be around $417.32 per month. Meaning for the next 30 years, you're going to be paying out between principal and interest of about $150,234 and change. Now, many people think that's a lot of money I'm going to spend over 30 years. But if you're able to raise rents, even at 3%, you know the, the, the target for most investors on that $100,000 what price point is thousand dollars a month in rent? And if in year two you're able to raise it three percent, which is lower than the national average, that's thirty dollars a month. Not overly sexy, but it's pretty common for a person to see two hundred dollars a month in cash flow that first year, and that's even a conservative number. At two hundred dollars a month the first year, and if it raises to two thirty the second year, because that thirty dollar increase in the thousand dollars a month in the in the uh, the gross rent, that net rent being Two thirty in cash flow, their cash flow increased by fifteen percent. That is a year-over-year potential growth as far as a uh, a compound effect on your cash flow. Then flipping to the other side of it, where the real value comes in, is that the loan on this they they don't raise the payment on the loan for it to pace inflation. For thirty years, they're going to accept the exact same dollar amount, even though the dollar's buying power is diminishing by that seven to nine percent. So, and I run a table just at 7%, recalculating every dollar that leaves the investor's hand to repay that note after they receive their rent and compare it to the value of the dollar the day that they use that 80000 to buy that property, when you recalculate every single one of those 360 payments, it's no longer $150,234.43 paid out to the lender on that. When you recalculate the value of the actual instrument used, only about $62,726.03. It's less than what was even borrowed. So the ability to use inflation on a long-term instrument like that to repay something that means you're not only nullifying compound interest, but you're actually even nullifying principal, just because we live in an inflationary environment. So the main objective here is to help people understand that you can use two negatives to make a huge positive for you. And that, those numbers are not mine. Those numbers come from the Kennesaw, Kennesaw State University's uh, professor of accounting.
0: Yeah, no, I I love that. And, and I agree with that completely. I mean, the effect of inflation, whether you call it just, I'll say, regular garden variety inflation or even hyperinflation, as we've seen, for example, in many countries around the world, whether it's in South America right now or a few countries in Africa that have experienced hyperinflation, it has the effect of wiping out... Income for people on fixed income. It has the effect of wiping out savings and it has the effect of wiping out debt. If you know those are the rules of the game, you play the game differently. It's just a different game by a different set of rules. A lot of people are out there saying, get a job, save money. Those rules don't work when you're playing a different game.
1: Precisely. And the game affects everybody the same. It's just a matter of where you place your attention and place your assets. You get to either advance in the game, or you actually get pushed back by the game. But the rules are always at work.
0: One of the things that uh, I'd like to focus in on, because I know you've gone from being just an average mortgage broker to someone who's doing a tremendous amount of volume. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you're servicing the investor community, where you get a lot of repeat business, as opposed to just getting business once every five or seven years when people move their own principal residence, what is it that you've done to scale up your business to such a high level? I mean, out of the thousands of mortgage brokers in the country, you're in the top 20.
1: Correct. I think it's just been the plain focus. You know, what I've noticed is that there is a lot of different loan programs out there that people can borrow from, right? There's a lot of things that I can try and understand guidelines on, but rather than try, there was a time when I tried to be everything to everyone. I found that I was nothing to no one. So over time, finding that I really, really identified with the real estate investor, well, I understood the real estate investor. Your regular home buyer is a very emotional experience. You know, they have a different reason for why they're purchasing the property, and you're trying to adapt to that in a short window of time. And it, it's a very volatile experience. I found that I really, really disliked it when I when I discovered what I did like, which is the nuts and bolts of real estate investment, and I identified with those, that particular. Uh, individual better than the, the individual homeowner and decided to just dump all focus on anything but real estate investment loans, my ability to just target that audience in the form of what I knew and what I understood and becoming an expert in that started compounding what I received in the form of clientele referral. Everything I have is by referral. There's very, very little marketing. I just barely got on Facebook this year started i do have four books that have been written that i'm just waiting to to come out through my publisher that are going to be going out this more of a mindset style book and a focus type book all four of them i actually have two more there with an editor and my ability to focus on that segment of the market so strongly and insist upon talking to every single person that i've ever have ever done business with up front and on the tail end of every deal has has compounded my referrals because that word of mouth has just just spread over these last 5 years.
0: I love that. So, when you're doing that high of volume of transactions, I think at one point you told me you were doing 70, 80 transactions a month. That's like 4 a day for every business day. How do you keep all of that going? Do you have an entire machine of staff working behind you? You must.
1: Well, I treat it how I, that all started is I I found myself in a Chipotle in 2014. And in Arizona in the, in the summertime, you know how it just sucks to stand outside instead of being inside. And as I was standing out waiting to get inside because there was only one person ahead of me at the door, I was able to finally get in there and look at this long line of people. And as I was waiting for this line of people to get me close to the counter, I was buying lunch for me and my one employee. Ellen Schmidt is her name. There was, um, I was noticing, I was counting all the heads behind the counter. And I realized there was 11 people there that was required to be efficient in building burritos. So it occurred to me that if they needed that many people to be efficient in just burrito construction, how many people did I really need to be efficient in the construction of an intricate financial instrument like a real estate investment loan? And that's where I started formulating a similar plan in my mind of having a different person at each stage. And since then, I have been able to grow my team to, to 15, including myself, where I have everyone from the initial phone call that's made. Uh, and scheduled by Samantha, my assistant, all the way to the, the funding check being cut, all within my staff. And, and we have the you know, the processors, the underwriters, the funders, all these folks are all reporting directly on my transactions. So I'm not having to ask for the clemency of the, the manager of another department. You know, I don't get in the way of how they do their job other than trying to make it uniform amongst every member of the team and have an assembly line process where it does move linear um and i and how how things get done as far as what order but outside of that they follow the regulations and the rules uh as we need to And we put a lot of checks and balances in place up front a lot of extra energy into the pre-qualification process with my most experienced person on the front end to be sure that nothing is ever touched that's not a worthy transaction
0: i love that well folks want to learn more what what's the best way to get in touch
1: How people would want to get in touch with me is just my website, AaronBChapman.com. That is always going to be consistent. I've had that website um, from a very early time. I'm going to keep that one up. And from there, it will always follow me.
0: And you're licensed in multiple states as well, correct?
1: That is correct. 25 states.
0: Fantastic. Well, definitely reach out to Aaron at AaronBChapman.com. Thank you, Aaron, for sharing your thoughts with us today. And for the listeners at home, have an awesome rest of your weekend.